my first 100 was Wasatch 100 here where I live, and also a great course. Uh, not quite hard rock course, but it's a great course. And, uh, you know, that'll probably be my last 100. It was my first, it might as well be my last. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Christian Ultra Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Morgan. And on today's show, I've got a really cool guest. His name is Carl Meltzer. We get into some really cool conversation about pretty much his entire history, his 100 mile ultra running career, uh, his fastest known time record on the Appalachian Trail. We talk about his love for beer and also golf, his relationship with his family, um, the uh, friends uh, who supported him on the Appalachian Trail and in other record attempts. Carl's a really cool dude. He's got documentaries on Netflix and YouTube. So enjoy the show. I know you've done quite a lot of podcasts. I've done probably at least 100 probably. (laughs) (laughs) So you just got to catch up with 100 milers to equal the podcasts and you'll be on par. Yeah, exactly. Nice. I'll I'll work on that. (laughs) Are you cool with going into like family history? I know your father's on the documentary and stuff. Yeah, you can ask anything. It's all good. I don't. Nothing bothers me. All right, cool. Well, hey, you got brothers and sisters, and what's the history with your parents? Oh yeah, well, I grew up in New Hampshire. Uh, I have one sister. She's two years older than I am. Um, we went to different high schools, which is kind of unique. But uh, you know, I just grew up as a regular kid in New Hampshire, and I moved out in Utah in 1989 as a ski bum. I came out here to be a ski bum. I ran in high school and stuff. Dropped out of college. Became a ski bum for a long time. And then, uh, you know, now I obviously I'm a runner now and I don't really ski as much as I used to, but my family life is good. Typical New England boy, you know, grew up walking around the mountains and skiing a lot. And uh, my dad was a big part of that. Um, my mom was kind of a mom, you know, mom on the side. Uh, my sister and I, I don't know, we didn't really hang out a ton, but because, again, because we went to different high schools. So things are kind of different on that end of things. But um, yeah, I mean, just. I'm a basic guy like everybody else, you know. I just kind of made something out of what I love to do. And you said you grew up in New Hampshire. So up to what age was that that you were in New Hampshire? Uh, until I was – see, I moved to Utah when I was – just before I turned 22. About a month, And so November of 89 is when I moved here. Uh, I was 21. What What was it like having those mountains, you know, the White Mountains and even the Appalachian Trail, I guess – I don't know the geography of New Hampshire, but um, was all that, you know, on your doorstep or easy, you know, a short drive away? Well, it was the the trails in New Hampshire and the AT and, you know, all those trails up there, they were, uh, it was about an hour and a half drive. So it wasn't, you know, I couldn't just go out the door, which that would have been nice, but, um, but it was an easy drive. So I didn't, I didn't go there all the time when I was real young. I spent a lot of time just cruising around our hills um, around where I lived, which is Southern New Hampshire. And, uh, and then my dad brought me skiing a lot all winter. I went skiing like every weekend. So I'd been around them mostly in the wintertime. The summertime happened more when I got out of high school and just, you know, I was kind of working as a bum a little bit. And then I went to school, which was Plymouth State College, which was actually in the White Mountains. So that was actually closer. So instead of going to school, I went hiking. Um, you know, so most of the time I really didn't spend a lot of time in the mountains except weekends. Yeah. And you said that your dad was an influence. So would, would those weekends kind of be with your dad and hiking or camping or stuff like that? 
Well, yeah, no, not really camping. We didn't, we weren't really campers. I mean, I'm a big camper now, but back then it was more like stayed in the hotel, but we mostly skied on the weekends. So it was winter, you know, obviously. So we got, we usually ski in Vermont, actually near Killington, Vermont, where the AT goes right over, pretty much over the top of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, but that was like weekend thing. So it was like one hotel night, but yeah, it was just time spent me and him just skiing. Sometimes we'd actually run on Saturday after skiing, which was always horrifying because it was hard, you know, you're always so tired from skiing, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just that kind of weekend stuff. And then during the week, um, when I was out of high school, I was just hung out with my buddies at home that were around and stuff like that. Were you always, when I was at school, I was, you know, like athletic, and uh, you know it was just seemed to be my natural character did and, and some of my friends weren't and and did you have that na- natural athletic ability at, at school when you were younger absolutely i was yeah i mean i could it's a gift right when you when you can kind of pick up games and do things with you in basketball as a good basketball player you know i mean i'm not a big person so good for my size yeah. but at the same time uh you know, basketball, anything that has a hand-eye coordination for me. Golf was another thing I played a lot of. Um, was sort of came easy to me, with the exception of probably a few sports. But other than that, I mean, just about anything is I can pick up pretty quick. And did that uh, influence that the friends that you made? Because obviously, there's all sorts of different people at school when you're a young age, and everyone's impressionable. Did you tend to gravitate? more towards friends who were more active and had active lifestyles? Uh, more or less. Yeah. Cause we hung out and did a lot of stuff, you know, my golf buddies, um, you know, golfers aren't generally as active as runners or basketball players or whatever, like in school. But, um, but those guys I hung out with just as much. We, we bit a lot of, we hung, we drank a lot of beers in high school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe that's not a good thing to say, but at the same time, it's reality. Uh, we did a lot of that. We hung out and all my friends. Yeah. I mean, our sporting teams basically kind of hung together, you know, but I, yeah. I played two sports when I was in high school, you know, golf and golf and running. And then I yeah. played basketball games with my other, with a kind of a different group of people too. So I had a lot of friends in different categories in high school. I was, I didn't meet the kids at the library club. We'll say that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was more definitely uh, gym class was my, was my best was where I got my best grades. And do you feel that you naturally was interested in that? Or was your father a catalyst for kind of almost uh, directing you that direction? Well, well I, don't, I don't know if my, dog, my dad was really the catalyst. I mean, he just, you know, when I was really young, when I went skiing on weekends, it was like fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. And I could ski with the, I could ski any run at that age. So, and that was just sort of normal. And but when high school was a little different, once you get into high school, you meet all kinds of different friends, you know, and then you kind of tend to gravitate a little away from your parents. Um, they didn't buy us the beer, you know, so <laughs> they uh, we kind of gravitated away from that with our friends. But um, you know, I mean, that's how high school is. I mean, that's I think that with most people now, that's probably how things are like that. Um, you yeah. get old, start becoming more independent, you know, and that's just. The big independence is when I moved out of my parents' house, you know, like we all did at one point. So yeah, yeah, things changed. And you said that was like um, you moved to Utah at the age of twenty-one to mm-hmm. yeah, correct. to pursue. So that so you're already in, you're already um, experienced in skiing, and you went over there, and then yeah. and you said became a ski bum. So what, I've heard you say that before in other podcasts, but what is a ski bum? One who skis. <laughs> 
<laughs> doesn't yeah. doesn't really care about anything else. Uh, <laughs> so when I well, it's kind of you know. So when I moved to Snowbird, it, you know, we wanted to find a good mountain to ski where they get a lot of snow, and we ended up in Utah, where average average snow falls 500 inches a year, uh, which is a which is one of the highest in the country, and it's a lot of good dry snow, and like that's when you're a ski bum, you're seeking the good snow, you know. And this was a great place to do it. And so I worked at night. I was a busboy at first, but I was a bartender for most of the years. I was up at the Snowbird. And that's a great, that's the perfect ski bum life because you wake up in the morning, you know, you go ski until whatever time you have to go to work and then you get out of work, hopefully early. Um, my bartending job, I actually got to work by 10, 30 or 11 at night. So that was ideal. Um, you know, usually bars stay open late, which isn't necessarily ideal when you want to ski at 7 a.m. But um, I was lucky and I had that good job and I did that for a long time and I don't regret it one bit by dropping out of school and moving to Utah. I think, you know, it's not proud of that dropping out of school, but at the same time, had I gone through say four years of school and got my degree in whatever it might be, um, I might still be living in New Hampshire or Vermont or something like that. I think I'd rather be out in Utah. There's just so much bigger space out here, bigger things to do. Yeah. And you said, did you say bus boy? Cause I'm not sure. Yeah. What is. yeah. What is that? Uh, yeah. Bus boy is uh, we just clean up the plates on the tables, you know, oh, pick up okay. working in the restaurants, you know, picking up stuff. Um, we didn't serve, we didn't serve the food. We picked up the dirty dishes. So, but it, but it was all right. You know, again, we just kind of ran our butt off for three or four hours doing that every night. And then we'd make about a hundred bucks a night in tips or something. That's so, pretty good. Survive. Um, and then we just, you know, get up the next day and go skiing. And then, um, so you mentioned beer before, it, because I suppose everybody's love of beer. I'm a real connoisseur myself of beer, and I enjoy having a a drink and stuff. And yeah. you know, some people don't. Like David Horton was on the show last, and right. um, you know, he likes to set an example by um, lead by not. He, he said, "If you shouldn't drink, he should not drink." Whatever he advises people do, he doesn't do himself. So, how, how right. when did right. you um, start? being able to incorporate kind of beer but also being athletic and not abusing the beer and and getting the balance right because it seems that you've got a good balance going on yeah well i mean it's it's for me i've always done what i want to do <laughs> um doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's always right you know it doesn't mean everyone will agree with my uh viewpoints on some things but i just kind of i'm the kind of guy that lives my life and uh not really care what everyone else really thinks. I mean, to a point, you know, obviously yeah. I'm not a jerk or nothing but here, but uh, but at the same time, it's like, you know, if you want to have a beer, have one, I'm not going to force it on you. I don't think it's right because I do it. Um, but I know what you're saying about David. David's a, uh, he's a very strong willed person. He's, he's influential. He's uh but at the, same, at the same time, he's very good at, you know, he's got, he's, he's religious to a bit. I'm not at all. I just like, I don't even, I'm, it goes right over my head, but, but David never really interrupts with me anyway. He's never like tried to transfer me over to that kind of thing, which I think is awesome. Yeah. Um, people like that are special, you know, um, I don't want a salesman trying to give me something. I'm just not, I was a terrible salesman on my own. So um, yeah, David's a good guy. And I, I'm, I just, I don't try to force anything on anybody. Just do what you want to do. I'm not going to bother you. Don't bother me. Everything's cool. You know, um, I try yeah. to keep it simple. And um, no, I, I was just thinking that you do have the balance right and you are influential as well. I mean, a lot of trail runners, it's a bit of a culture actually, isn't it? Trail yeah. running and beer. So they kind of go together. 
but yeah, the, not the only one out there drinking beers after the run. <laughs> Can assure you that. Um, I'm not saying it's good for you. <laughs> um, no, it's just you know, I mean, I, I like I enjoy a good cold beer after a long race. It's great. Yeah, for sure. So um, that's your background, and how about um, so? What's the have you won 42 100 mile races, or is is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I've won 42 times at the 100 mile distance, and that's yeah. one times 60 ultras so that would be anything over a marathon other you know most of them obviously are hundreds um because yeah. that was my sort of my specialty um and the shorter races that i won i was younger <laughs> um yeah. i can't run as fast i'm not nearly as fast as i used to be it, actually that's uh here's a side note question what would you say is the age where if someone starts you know, running in their 20s, 100 milers, would you say over the next three decades, if they continue at it, what decade or what age is kind of prime for 100 milers? Yeah, that's a good question. I think when I started running, I ran my first 100, I was 29. Okay, so you're looking at guys like Killing Jornet and, and Walms, and those guys are all in their 20s. I think Killing's just turned 30, but he's been doing it for 10 years. Um, how long would they last? What would their peak year be? I think it's hard to say. I think it takes a number of years to sort of master your craft a little bit. Um, my best years, I think I was 38 to four, between like 38 and 40 in terms of like how fast I could have been. Um, my speed for hundreds didn't really slow down, really start to, you know, slow down where I couldn't compete at the front in the big races until I was about, I don't know, 46 or seven maybe. Um, but now, now I'm 52. So the last five years, if you were to go look at all my stats, you understand that. But um I think peak age is probably, if you really want to run your best 100, it's probably mid-30s. You know, I think Killing Jornet has run as fast as Hard Rock if he ever runs it again. I bet you he can run it faster. Um, and he's got the record, so that's a good judgment test. Um, look at the guys that won uh, UTMB, the, you know, the biggest races on the stage. I mean, Pau Capel, I don't know how old Pau is. I think he's in his young low 30s or something. So, yeah, mid-30s would be my guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It's different, isn't it, compared to, for example, football or boxing or I'm not sure about basketball, but some of these other sports. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. But the thing is, like, you know, the young, the kid that's 21 still has the ability to run probably the fastest time. The question is, will they mentally be able to do it or will they physically not blow themselves up or something like that? You know, I think, I mean, look at the peak marathon. The marathoner's peak age, I think, is about 27 or something like that, they say. Yeah, You know, if you go a little bit longer, you think obviously you get a little bit older, but the young guys still have that ability to, to really smash out a hundred mile race. It's just a matter of like, they haven't figured out their nutrition right properly, or, you know, sometimes they do. And sometimes they can just nail it without even, even thinking about it. Um, but when you start to turn 45, 47, you're probably not going to compete with those 30 year olds. It just, you just get slower. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. just, <laughs> yeah. about it. you just, you just slow down. And, and I'm, and I'm seeing it more and more now as I get older, like that curve is getting steeper and I'm getting slower and slower, faster and faster, you know, uh, still love, enjoy and love and enjoy doing it. So that's what's really matters. But, um, yeah, it's, we've seen it. We've seen ultra running change the last number of years. Um, a lot of younger kids getting into it. So yeah, really that, that age, uh, peak age is probably going to come down a little bit. And and how about your record? So you've you've won forty two hundred milers, and like, what's your fastest hundred miler been out of those forty two? 
Uh, my fastest hundred was at Rocky Raccoon 100, which was 1418, which is pretty good, but yeah. it's not. It's but it's not. You know, there are a lot of guys that ran low 13s at that race. So I, you know, I never won that one. It's, it's flat, twisty, single track trail. Really, kind of a pretty cool route. Um, and then I ran 1434 at Animal Island, which was uh, in near Salt Lake. And that's a pretty, very fast, runnable course, too. My best race was probably, though, not the fastest time, but the San Diego 100, which was, I'm going to say 2000, it was 2006. And I ran 1548. And it's hard to say what that means on that course, but it was out and back on the PCT, Pacific Crest Trail, and it was technical, it was competitive. And I just like, I slammed that race right start to finish line. Um, it was a great feeling, you know, but that was one of my yeah. better ones. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's every course is different. I've never done like a hundred mile on a track where you can really gauge that, like, you know, compare myself to anyone else. Yeah. Um, even Rocky Raccoon is a trail hundred. Yeah, totally. And it's twisty yeah. and it's, it can be muddy and, you know, twisty is good for me. Rocks roots are good for me. Um, but the record at Rocky Raccoon is 1244. Right. Yeah. And I was there and that's the year, actually, I was there that year uh, when Ian Sharman broke that record. I ran 1438, I think, but um, I was there when I saw Ian run that and that was pretty impressive. He was just cruising. Every, every once in a while you see him coming on an out and back or something. Yeah. yeah. He was cruising. It was awesome. It's a great performance. Yeah. yeah. I've run with Ian a couple of times. He's definitely yeah. really consistent. And after the yeah. race, he has a shower, brushes his hair, puts a shirt on, and just looks like he's uh, out like for a he, Sunday stroll. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's pretty amazing. He's a great runner, great person too. Yeah, good guy. Um, and do you keep a training log? I know that you're not into kind of Strava and these online things, but do you keep a, a diary, a written training log? Uh, I have a little spreadsheet of my own. I do for sure. Um, just to, I mean, I'm not that tight on monitoring it, but I do like to see. The reason for keeping a log, it doesn't have to be real technical, I don't think. Um, but the reason for keeping a log is you can look back at patterns of what you've done in the past. You know, why did I run so well for these three months or whatever? You really want to analyze it. I mean, my notes aren't very long um, or anything like that. And I don't expect my clients to write me a book either um, every time they go for a run. But I think it's important to use that data, as simple as it is, to look back and see how you can improve on it. You know, I yeah. mean, that's I keep a log for sure. Um, I keep my log for my golf scores too. So maybe I'm a little weird, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's a good idea to keep a log, I think. And um, what's been your favorite hundred miler uh, over the, well, since you started hundreds, have you got like a yeah. favorite? Well, I think hard rock is hard rock is a big, you know, I kind of put hard rock on the map in a sense back in 2001 when I broke the record by three hours, which is now four hours faster. But at that time, at that time, um, that was a big thing. And, and then I did my whole year, every year was focused around hard rock. So yeah. I was a bender at snowbird. I'd save all my quarters and my money all went along. So I could go live in the San Juans for three weeks to run the hard rock 100. And that lasted for, you know, seven or eight years in a row, probably. Wow. So it was, it was, I mean, it was cool. You're hanging out 11,000 feet. You're seeing some friends, but kind of a lot of solitude really. Um, yeah. so my focus was hard rock and that race is pretty special. Um, my first 100 was Wasatch 100 here where I live, and also a great course. Uh, not quite hard rock course, but it's a great course. And, uh, you know, that'll probably be my last 100. It was my first. It might as well be my last. Oh, uh, the Wasatch. Not, yeah, I'm not sure when that'll be, but um, 
Who knows? Maybe it'll be my hundredth on the nose. I don't know. I got about 25 more to go. So I'm not, I got a little ways to go to get there. You've done 75 hundreds. I think so. Yes. There's something like that. <laughs> I actually don't know that. I have more logged, but I don't really actually know the exact number. I know how many I've won. But. Yeah. Scott Jurek retired, didn't he, from the sport? So I guess um, that's another thing I wanted to ask you. Do you have, so yeah, maybe after a hundred hundreds, you may retire from running hundreds potentially? Well, I could even retire earlier than that. <laughs> so it's not easier, you know? But I think when I retire from actually competing, I think I'll know when that time is. Uh, it's not that yet. I don't think my desire to, to race at the top or to compete right now is quite as high as it used to be. Um, and all this, obviously this pandemic hasn't made that any easier, but, uh, you know, right now I, because I've slowed down a little bit, I, I'm cool with just going out and doing it and see where I end up. I mean, I'm still going to do okay. I'm not going to, I'm not to the middle pack yet, but, um, you know, <laughs> and it's still, you still have to take for, take it for what it is and being able to, to do it, being able to live and build a life around running is not many people have really done that, you know? I mean, that's my job, right? Running. <laughs> I mean, more or less. So I feel pretty lucky to have what I have, you know, and just to be able to do it. But when I retire, it'll be a, it'll be a good day to retire. Um, Jurek told me when he, when I, when I met Scott Jurek, he was like 32 or 33. Yeah. And I mean, he was going to retire when he was 40. And I was like, no way. You're not retiring. When you're 40. You know, I kind of give him some shit and uh, he retired when he was 40. He actually did it. And he did come back for the AT, as you know, um, but that was multiple, multiple years after he really stopped competing. He kind of threw himself in a few events, and then I don't think his ex he had maybe a little higher expectations than what he was capable of. Um, but, you know, and then he just did the AT and then wrote a book. So I know he's got two kids now, and Jenny's great, so he's, he's busy doing that. Yeah, and have, that's actually another thing as well. Would you, have you considered? I know you've got a couple of documentaries. I actually watched one about you doing the Pony Express, which mm -hmm. was really cool. And then obviously there's the Red Bull made to be broken. Have you thought about maybe? Because even Scott had some, I think, help with like a co-writer, co-author. Co I think yeah. he did. Have you uh, considered yeah. uh, putting a book out there? Uh, my book is actually almost written. Oh, wow. So you're in the process of doing it. Didn't know that. The hardest thing for me with the book is right now. So I've had a, a co-author, a, a ghostwriter, if you will. Um, yeah. And, and he's done a nice job. Uh, but, you know, but, but there's things that I'm kind of tweaking it around. And I'm not I'm one of those guys that is not super motivated to work on it. Yeah. Um, I'll run or go play golf or do something outside. So my motivation, you know, I dropped out of school, right? I couldn't pay attention to class. I can pay attention to the book that I'm writing myself. So it's taken me like forever to kind of get it done. It is It is pretty close to finished. And we have a publisher and that kind of thing. So it's kind of set up. Um, I just have to sort of finish my editing, which is pathetic to say, but um, it's coming. Um, and it's, it's not just going to be a chronological order of my career. It's more of, um, I mean, there's a little bit of that in there for sure, but it's, there's some other stories in there. There's some other, uh, just chapters that aren't even really about running. Yeah. Um, people would find it interesting. I've, I've lived a pretty, pretty, uh, not, not, I don't know if gifted life is the right word, but I've been very lucky to do what I've done. As I said it already, um, you know, I got to do the AT supported, the Pony Express supported. I, the AT was th three times I've done it, you know, yeah. 
yeah. those are priceless times. And as you'll know, hopefully you will do it as well. Um, it's, it's a thing that, you know, not many people get to do and it's just get to kind of have to embrace that. And uh, having to run for Red Bull all those years and now Hoka, they've really stood behind me and supported me, which they still do. So it's, you know, I got nothing to complain about. If I complain about anything, I've, you know, something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, that, it, it's funny how you say that you dropped out of school and you don't have the focus to sit down and kind of, you know, <laughs> now the ball's in your court for editing the book. But when it comes down to hundreds, you know, you really put the blinkers on, you know, you're probably the most focused hundred mile running athlete. So you are focused just in a yeah. different area. So exactly. It's for focused on what I like to do. You know, it's just, yeah be very focused when i play golf too i mean i love golf i'm a four handicap so I'm, i don't shoot par but i'm a pretty good player you know and when you when you hit it good enough well enough it's it's focus and that game is all that game is really focused if you're not focused and forget it right but hundreds yeah. always tried to maximize my time with hundreds and be most the most efficient guy out there because i'm gaining time by efficiency i don't have the speed anymore but if i can gain 25 minutes over the course of a run, just because my aid station time was 25 minutes faster, you know, I mean, thank you very much. You gave me a 25 minute head start. And that's how I've always been with my career with 100 is that minimize your downtime, less than 15 minutes every time you run 100, which is nothing, you know, that it's things just take 15 minutes uh, to fill your water bottles and stuff. So um, that's just my focus, you know, the book has been tough because I, and when I work on the screen, if I'm, you know, I coach people online. So if I'm on the screen for more than three hours at once, I start to get dizzy <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> anymore. So, uh, then, but then I give myself a break. I just, I don't know how my wife sits in front of her screen for her job, like eight hours a day. It's just mind boggling. Um, I need to get out and move around to be happy. Yeah, that, no, that makes sense. And, um, Actually, I'll, let's ask, ask you about that. So how did you get into the coaching? How long have you been coaching and and what's it like at the moment? Well, I started coaching in 2009 um, and that kind of happened after I was running for a company called backcountry.com. Um, you might've heard of them, but they're an online retailer and they gave us all websites. They kind of set up our websites for us. And at that time, that was when websites were just beginning sort of for athletes and things like that. Facebook was out there just barely, you know, that kind of thing. So I had no idea how to do it because I wouldn't pay attention in class on how to do that stuff. <laughs> so, um, you know, they set that up. But once that happened, it was sort of like, you know, what's the next step in your career? What is your business plan for your future? What do you do, you know? So I started um, taking on clients to coach them. And I've learned a lot from them as well, um, just about training and stuff like that. I mean, I, I've read the, believe it or not, I've read the Daniels formula, which is Jack Daniels, the coach, and, yeah. and, and uh, Arthur Lydiard, too, some stuff of his. And we think very much alike, which is crazy because those guys are kind of like all about feel, um, you know, listen to your body, that kind of thing. And that's how I, how, I, how I have always been in my career is I listen to my body on how much I run. You know, I don't run massive miles, but I know what my body can do. Um, but yeah, the, the website from backcountry.com got me into it. And then that yeah. sort of kind of, you know, accelerated from there. And right now, um, I'm, I have enough clients. I'm busy. Um, I don't like to, I don't want to have too many. I like to have the right amount that balances my life and being able to support my runners too at the same time and not, you know, take three days to reply back to them. That's kind of silly. Um, yeah. so I stay on top of that as much as possible. I mean, it's not a perfect world, but, um, 
it's been really cool. It's been, obviously it's another source of income and that, that helps the business plan, I suppose. Uh, but it's, it, it's a good ride and I work at home. I mean, working at home is priceless. Um, you're not read, you're not creating some kind of plan and saying stick to this. You're, you're pretty much encouraging them to listen to the way they feel and tune into their own bodies and, and their minds and what they want to do and how they feel. That's that's true. I, I do put plans together for them what to do every biweekly, or I'll yeah. do like a three month kind of training plan up to a race or something like that. So I put a plan together. It's not crazily detailed. It kind yeah. of depends on the runner, you know. Um, you have you have I have some runners that are you know on the A team, and then there's some runners who are a little bit further back and stuff. So everyone's really different. I don't have any templates. I don't use uh, anything else. It's all me. So I just yeah. kind of learn about the runner for a while, see what their strengths and weaknesses are, and then try to tailor their program so it fits into their schedule. Because, you know, again, it's like we all have jobs and we all have time where we have to go to work. And so for me to try to create a plan around um, people's work is can be a bit of a challenge sometimes, you know. If someone works Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 14-hour shifts three days in a row, it's like, well, it's kind of hard to run on those days, right? So – there's a fine line of like trying to maximize your time while you're, while you're running. So that's kind of how I work my schedules into, um, but there's all kinds of different workouts, you know, those treadmill workouts, which I despise, but, um, yeah. that's what, you know, uh, but there's different yeah. interval workouts and stuff that I have that I like that helps people get faster and stuff like that. So it just depends on the individual. No, it's good. I like the way you say that you get to learn about the individual athlete and, you know, and then eventually you're able to recommend what you think works for them. Right. Right. And that's why you keep a log, you know, that log tells a lot. And sometimes don't get back their log. Like, And that's, you know, I doesn't help me. I have to, you have to kind of help me help you and vice versa. We have to kind of help each other. And that's how yeah. you get better. My clients that really improve the most are the ones that we get the most feedback from. Yeah. That's just, that makes sense. You know, anything else in life. Um, how about you personally? Have you ever had a coach or have you ever looked to, I don't know, literature to study uh, any, well, I know you've studied Arthur Lydia and um, Jack Daniels, but how about for yeah. your own inspiration and in your training and running? You know, I've never had, I mean, my obviously my high school cross country coach, but that's kind of not the question. That's not really the question. You know, as a coach, as an ultra runner, no, I haven't never had a coach. I've always done, uh, you know, I live in Salt Lake, which are with really big mountains right outside my front door here. And I've been running up and around the mountains for 25 years, you know, and it's just making me stronger. I mean, skiing, I was always a backcountry skier too. So that would do that in the wintertime as well, which is a great workout uh, and you get good skiing. Um, but I've mostly just trained hard in the mountains, you know, and I, you won't see me go to a track and work on my speed work because my specialty is the hundred, right? It's yeah. not, not the, the road 50 K rec, you know, record or anything like that. It's always been the hundred, the mountain hundred. So I focused I mean, if you want to be good at a mountain hundred, you need to run in the mountains, right? You don't run in Florida, you run in the mountains. You're going to run in Liverpool, you don't live in Florida. <laughs> um, so I just specialized on a certain type of terrain. And I think after all these years that I've done it, I've kind of figured out the technical junk, you know, which is why, again, the AT was good for me. And, uh, you know, I did pretty well in the AT. Yeah, I mean, you still got the southbound record, so, you know. You'll have the southbound. Everyone's afraid to go southbound. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that's that's true. Um, I mean, what Carell did was pretty amazing. I, I You know, uh, 
I don't, I don't, it's going to be hard to break that record. I spent 15 days with um, Carol and uh, yeah. yeah, he was in a great mood from start to finish. He didn't have right, a bad right. day while I was there. So yeah, he said he had no bad days and that's, and that's, <clears throat> that's the key to that success is you can't really have a bad day. I had no bad days through 18 days when I started, when I was, I was cranking along, maybe not 41 day pace, but I, I bet I could have been under 43, but you know, um, so things happen and you don't really know when they're going to happen sometimes. And all of a sudden I was like, and I was giving time back because I my shin was just, just a wreck for a little while. I sort of worked through it. And, and, and how, and yeah, actually that brings me on to injuries, but outside of the AT, have you had any injuries in your career that have sidelined you for X amount of time? Um, well, I've had in 2000, I, this wasn't from running, but I had a bulging disc in my back which was from shoveling dirt at my house. Yeah. Um, so that was, that's not so pleasant. You don't want one of those, but I didn't herniate my disc. I just bulged it. So it actually, it, the inflammation came down and went back to where it's supposed to go. And that same year, three months later, I won the Wasatch 100. So that I didn't train like all summer and I, I pulled the race off, but uh, that was probably the longest time I really wasn't able to run, but I've had, I've had minor stuff. You know, I've pulled, I've torn both my calf muscles or strained yeah. them, not torn them, but strained them. Um, recently too in April actually I just got over it um, but nothing really you know I, I've broken a rib I've broken my shoulder twice I've broken fingers I I broke my wrist when I crashed at Zane Gray which I was falling off off a dead tree so I wasn't even really running related I just kind of crashed um, yeah but nothing you know I've taken more time off after I did the AT three times in a row than I ever would from an injury <laughs> yeah fried you know like two months usually yeah, that's, I was going to ask you. So you took off about two months, eight weeks after those uh, attempts. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and successful attempt. Yeah, and and you know the first day back running, you, you kind of feel good, like you're moving, but man, you're going really slow. <laughs> you're so trained to go, you know, you're not going very fast in your AT. And even when you're jogging, you're not going that fast. So you you just create this slow turnover that you're so used to as like autopilot. Um, so getting myself back up to speed. After the AT took took me about the first time took me about three and a half months, and the other two times probably four to four and a half before I was like, all right, I and I went to whatever place is my normal time, um, kind of like a bread and butter run. But it takes a while to recover from that. It's it's just everything's just slow. <laughs> so, so how about the um, chat about the your first attempt? And you said I think it was under back was it that backcountry? Dot com, yeah, backcountry.com, yep. Yeah, backcountry.com. And um, what was the differences between, because you actually finished, uh, did you have any injuries during that or anything you had to work with? I think you did 50-something days. Yeah, so the it was almost it was just under 54 days was the total time. But during that, so I brought this idea of the backcountry.com about me doing the AT and I never thought they'd bite on it, but I was like, yeah, you really want to do that? I was like, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, we kind of put a plan together and I'd been on the AT in New Hampshire and Vermont some and a little bit in Virginia and a little bit in Pennsylvania, but not really a lot of it, you know? Uh, so, you know, out came the maps, out came all that kind of stuff and started, you know, doing some work and I had to put a plan together where I sleep every night but backcountry.com got me an RV. Like we talked about this, but they got me an RV and uh, you know, it sounded great. 
like great idea, RV, blog every day, people get a prize, you know, all these kinds of ideas they had. And and that sounds all great on paper, but once you kind of get out, out into the field, it becomes a little bit different. Yeah. Um, you know, the crew, it's the crew that, that makes or breaks the thing. The, the guy on the trail, whether it's myself, you or Carell or whoever, we just have to move forward, you know, to get to our next spot. Mm. Um, the RV was a, a bad idea. My, my, my crew was, were terrible at navigation. <laughs> because um, they had paper they had paper maps you know back then we weren't using dropping pins and things like that uh, and Maine was complicated because those dirt roads they had gates you had to get approval you had to do a lot of different things and it started out I still made my miles early and but by the time I got to uh, route 11 in Vermont I was 10 days into it I think or t- maybe 14 days into it something like that um, my right shin was a mess my shins were a mess and I couldn't walk so I sat in the parking lot for four days. Just I'm like, I'm not going to stop. I'll just keep going if I can get these things at least do it movable. And it took three or four days of icing them and back and forth and working on them. And then finally I was able to go again. But at that point, you know, now I'm down 200 miles on where yeah. the record is. So catching up at that point was, you know, pretty improbable. So, but I wanted to finish. And, uh, you know, we learned a lot. I wanted to learn from it. And I learned that the RV is not the way to go because it's just too complicated dumping the thing. And it's just some roads are more and more complicated. Uh, I mean, the bed was nice. It was comfortable, but I don't need, I didn't really need it. We just had to figure yeah. out a better way that it was a little more stealth. So, you know, once I, once I completed it, I still called it a success because I finished. And then, uh, yeah, you know, it took those three months, three or four months to get back. And then I said, well, I'm going to start racing again. I don't want to like drop off the racing scene quite yet. I think I was 40 or 41 when I did the AT first time. So, you know, um, I went back to racing and you know, it all kind of fell behind. Got a lot of grief on the AT that year from a few people, but that was, that's just, that's typical. You know, there's always a hater, (laughs) Yeah, Um, which is unfortunate, but that's, it's okay. We dealt with it and we learned from it. And then I went back in 2014 and, that again, just didn't, I wasn't in very good shape when I started just cause I had injured in the spring and, but I, but I had this plan and it, like everybody was involved and all this stuff. So I started and that was a struggle. Um, I'm lucky I made it 1500 miles actually. So, yeah. you know, and then we put it together with Red Bull after that for 2016. And when you say uh, you weren't in good shape, so what is that? Cause that's different for everybody. Did, did that, right. what did that mean to you? Not in good shape for the second one? I was in really good, in 2008, when I first did, I was in great shape. I was doing about 80 miles a week. Everything was, I mean, everything felt easy until I got injured, until I got hurt. 2014, I was injured all spring. So I think I had a, a you know, the calf issue was something. It wasn't anything major, major, but I wasn't running much, you know. I was running 20 miles a week and doing little, like nothing. So think yeah. of taking an endeavor of going 50 miles a day for, you know, mm. five days or whatever, of running on 20 miles a week. I mean, you know, you can work into your fitness, but <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of, yes, eventually. So I just wasn't that fit on that end of things. You know, I completed the miles. So I was obviously somewhat fit yeah. early, completed the miles, but I just, it became harder and harder to hit 50 per day. And I had to have 50 a day, you know, yeah. especially in your train, like Connecticut was, was quite as hard. Uh, you know, Massachusetts isn't that hard. There's some, there's some sections in there that are, that are, you can get an extra, bit of miles and I couldn't even get 50. So I got more and more frustrated as I got along too. Uh, my crew wasn't working out all that great 2014. It was, 
you know, you start arguing with your crew, that's not good. Um, everybody needs to be smiling, even if they're faking it <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, that's just part of it. It just it just didn't pan out, you know. And 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 how far did you get? Did you say fifteen hundred miles? Yeah, I think I think the place I stopped was Bear Wallow Gap. It's in Virginia. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think that was the spot. I just had like you know I've had enough. I'm out. And were you on were you on pace on record pace at that point? Well, I was I was according to where you know I had I had virtual Jen Farr, okay. So Jen, I had Jen's itinerary, what she did to have the record southbound. Yeah. Every every day she slept, I knew where she was, right? So essentially I was racing what I called the virtual Jen. Yeah. <laughs> All I had to do was stay within, you know, 20 miles of her, and then I'll just go through the night the last day, and okay, that's no problem. Because she didn't go through the night the last day. So yeah. there was time for me to be, be had on the back end at the very end. But I was like 50 miles behind virtual Jen. And... Yeah. And that was probably, when you look back at it, that may have been recoverable, but I just was not, I was a wreck. You know, I just, I was struggling and I just felt it wasn't recoverable. And I was like, screw it, I'm out. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I had funded, I funded that one all myself too. Yeah. So that was a um, small piece of the puzzle was that, well, do I want to throw another, it's going to cost me another three or 4,000 bucks to get this to the finish line or do I just go home? And yeah. You know, I, I kind of regret not going to the finish line, but at the same time, it's like, you know, that was that was the moment, and that's what I did. So, you know, I learned from it, and that was important. And and that was fourteen. So you had your first attempt in two thousand and eight, then two thousand fourteen, yep. and then, in fact, actually, what year was the Pony Express? Uh, two thousand ten. Okay, and do do you was that a record? Well. You, you you can call it a record if you want. Um, I, I don't know if you want to call it that, but the reason we did the Pony Express that year is I actually brought the idea of going back to the AT up to Red Bull. And they weren't really 100% keen on the AT, but what they do with their project, they do a lot of projects with their athletes. And this was the first project I was doing with them, you know, technically. Yeah. So it happened to be the 150th anniversary of the Pony Express Trail randomly i don't you know it just kind of happened in the timing and they said hey what if you ran from you know Sac sacramento to saint joe and and the pony tie in the pony express thing and blah 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 so at first i was like really <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds like a road run you know um yeah. which mostly dirt roads which was okay it was it was actually a lot better than i would have thought um but that was a production you know um we had to do filming and interviews and stuff like that and we had the big old RV, which I put a dent in the first day I drove it to California. Um, <laughs> Red Bull didn't have a problem with that. But at the same time, you know, big RV, big support. There was two RVs. We had Leslie Shooter, our uh, physiologist, was on board. And she was taking blood from me every, pricking my finger every morning to check my blood and do whatever they do. I was just a runner, you know. I'm just doing my thing. But it was quite an experience. I really enjoyed it, um, believe it or not. It was uh, – you know, I only ran 10 hours a day. I wasn't out there for 14 because I would get 50 miles in, in, in 10 hours every day easily. Yeah. A lot of days it was like nine and a half. So I was yeah. moving okay, you know, and I had plenty of time to have a beer or three after my run and, and go to bed yeah. by clock and get up at 6.30. I got plenty of sleep. Um, so really, honestly, I, I it felt easy to do 50. Yeah. I did average 53 a day. It felt pretty easy. I could have done more, but it really, I mean, I didn't need to, you know. They thought I'd do 30. And I'm like, I'll do 50. And they looked at me kind of funny. I'm like, I might as well keep moving if it's a out, you know? 
And how was, uh, did, did your father, was your father involved in that one? Uh, they were not, it was, uh, it was kind of all yeah. me. Um, yeah. Eric Bell's, Eric Bell's crewed for me the back half of the pony. Um, yeah. But no, my parents were not. Then Red Bull actually flew my parents out to St. Louis, which yeah. is where I kind of, we had our last meeting after it was over and, uh, they flew my parents out to have dinner. I didn't know they were coming. So that was pretty cool. Um, but no, they really weren't involved with that one at all. And you met, you mentioned Eric Bells. Uh, do you want to uh, give a outline of who Eric Bells is and what he's done in terms of your running and your record yeah. attempts? So Eric Bells, um, I met him through a friend. So I live in Sandy, Utah. I, when I was working up at Snowbird, I rented uh, rooms out to roommates, you know, and they basically paid my mortgage for me. And um, one of my roommates, Tom, his friend was Eric Bells. He came out to ski with Tom one year. We met, Eric moved to Utah. He moved into my house. So then we were sort of roommates for a couple years. So, you know, you get to know roommates pretty, you know, pretty well after a while, especially a few years. And um, then he, he now lives in South Tahoe, but he, you know, he's just a good, good, funny dude, you know, <laughs> um, knows my habits. We hung out. We've never, ever had, I don't think we've ever had an argument in our entire life. We just, we get along great. And he always knows how to make a smile. Um, so he was a great, really a great crew person to have because he just, kind of brings positive energy to, to the whole crew, even when um, there might be one or two people that are a little down uh, Yeah, on the picture. And it's like, all right, <laughs> everybody's happy now, you know, uh, he's just a great person. And, and so he crewed the back half of the Pony Express. And then was he also involved in AT part two, the second attempt? He was, yeah, he was in the 18, 2014. Uh, he wasn't there the whole time. He was there. He came on board at like, where did he jump in? He jumped in somewhere in like early Virginia or something. So he was only there for about a week and a half. And there was one guy named Larry O'Neill who was, he wanted to call himself the crew chief, but he sort of, he wasn't the best crew person, but he sort of was like an alpha. I take control. You do this. You know, I'm the boss. That's no good. <laughs> you kind of want to work together. Um, yeah. He didn't work out that well on that end of things. I uh, still love the guy, but it just wasn't good for growing. Um, but then Eric Bell showed up for about a week and a half. And then after I just couldn't, I was a little mentally out of it too. Um, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. You know, as tired as I am too, but it wasn't working out. So yeah, Eric was part of it. And I just, you know, I took care of his, obviously his expenses and paid, paid him some cash. Yeah. A couple grand or something to come out. So again, that's part of the funding that I paid that I threw out my money. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, he was part of it. <laughs> And then you guys were pretty much winning combination in the, in your third attempt. Cause you got it, didn't you? You got the, you got yeah. the record. Yeah. And he, and he, you know, we also, he and I went to Maine and I wanted to rehearse the first six days to get to Grafton notch. So, and this was an important place because to get there at a certain time and everything was at least to get you started going southbound. Uh, Eric and I, we went there and I did all those six days, just like I would on the AT um, just as a rehearsal. So we had it really wired. Like there was no guessing of where the, where we, where he had to walk into the trail. There was no guessing on any dirt roads or turns. It was like, we know it, this is it. Boom. So that was really important. After that, after you get through Maine, once you get past Southern Maine, um, the roads and the trail connections are easier to find. Uh, so that was just, you know, he was part of the whole plan for a year and a half. I mean, we went back and forth. I drove the whole AT. I told you before, um, I drove every single road crossing in my car by myself. 
And it's funny because I drive for eight or nine hours a day and I only went like a hundred trail miles every day. Cause I was zigzagging back and forth, you know, to go to the road crossings all day long. Plus I went yeah. for every day. So it took a while to do that. Um, but Red Bull, Red Bull did it all. So that was made it that much better. Of course. Yeah. If it's paid for, it makes it a lot easier yeah. and less stress on you. And also, so, so you did a month recon by yourself, like a kind of a road trip and you yep. marked out, I heard that you mapped it out on paper and yep. uh to make it easier for the crew how much of right. an adventure was that for you get, getting out there and doing that as well well i loved it i mean <laughs> i mean i i'm pretty good at hanging out by myself like i said i stood three weeks alone in the san juans you know before hard rock um i loved it i went to the east coast i started what i did is i drove east and i started in like uh northern virginia or something then i drove all the way to the end southbound then i came back to virginia I ran the Mastodon 100 in Virginia, <laughs> and then I drove yeah. to Nature, okay, and then like I took a little time off with my family, and then I went all the way to Maine, and then I drove back, you know, southbound, kind of like a flip-flop sort of thing. I drove yeah. back down to where I connected on, and then I drove back to Utah. So I sort of did this route east coast, and I went and ran a race, which I won, which was great. Um, you know, so that, that's kind of how I fit it all in when I did it, but it was it was great. I mean, every night I just, I would you know, just as we would camp in the parking lots, um, I had my uh, I had a, my Subaru Outback as my car. So I, I slept in my car a lot, but I got a hotel once in a while too, uh, every three or four nights or something. But it was great. And every morning you wake up, you get to go for a three-hour run on the AT, and then you go, then you just do recon, you know, sitting in your car, driving around and marking it on my paper maps. Yeah, okay. So you were running as well, a little bit running just to keep yeah. it. So you're not just sitting and driving all day, of course. No, well, yeah, I'd run first. I'd get a good run in. And then I'd then a big hack and then I can drive, you know, all day. It wasn't a big deal. I'd just keep replenishing myself. I, I kind of know from listening to you in other podcasts that you kind of, you're good with your, I think, 15-year-old Casio watch, I think. Is that right? <laughs> the F91? <laughs> I saw someone else wearing one of those yesterday. Um, it's, it's just, a, you know, I mean, it's a little tiny little watch. Still time. Got a stopwatch on it. Yeah, exactly. But what really intrigued me about that was that when when I was on the AT, if I wanted to know where I was, I'd just look at my watch and it would say mile 21, whereas yours right. is more time-based. So how yep. did you perceive uh, where you were? Was How did that work? Well, yeah, I could I could tell... I could look at the map and if it say, let's say I had a seven and a half mile section to the next road crossing where I get crew, right? Mm. I could tell them, I could look at the train or know what the train was. It's all kind of the same. Um, I'm like, I'll be there in hour and 48 minutes. And I would show up in an hour and 48 minutes. <laughs> I was so in time after when you walk the trail every day, every day, all the time. And you, you just get to know like well, how fast you're going, you know, a 17 minute mile, 3.6 miles an hour. Yeah, you know, numbers in your in your head. Um, I could tell you. I knew where where I was. I knew about what time I'd get to the van. And lo and behold, yeah. you know, every once in a while there'd be a window of, you know, five minutes where I'd miss it. But and every once in a while, if I had a bad patch or something, I knew I'd be a little late. But um, I could just I knew by time. It wasn't even wasn't even hard. And when we when we were in, when we were in Maine doing that recon for six days, um, there's some long sections in Maine. It was eight hour section behind Sugarloaf Peak in Maine. And uh, I knew it was going to take eight hours, but I did it exactly eight hours in our recon and did exactly eight hours on when I did it 
during the AT, you know, on, on the attempts. So I knew right where I was all the time. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't need to watch, tell me how many miles in I or anything. I just knew. Yeah. It sounds like the best way to do it really. You're much more connected to what you're doing than just relying on some technology. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I mean, technology is great, but I just, I always felt that, do you really need it? <laughs> Obviously, yeah. we're talking with Zoom here. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, some of it may be. I'm, I'm a very simple person, and I don't need all the gadgets to tell me how I'm doing. I know how I'm doing because I am me. I know how I feel. <laughs> so, you know. How about, um, I'm asking you a lot of questions about yeah, AT right. here as well, but it's pretty cool because it's uh, an awesome thing that you did. And you still have the record for kind of how kind of how much sleep were you going on a do you run in fact in general are you a kind of eight hour person or and how much did you get on the at on your third attempt um i i had about eight hours a night on the at uh, that's good night but most nights some nights the thing with my attempt is i could have been so much faster because there were a number of days where i would stop at six thirty yeah. because you know the next leg was 18 miles right so I wouldn't see the van for 18 miles. I'm like, do I really want to walk five more hours? Then it's 11:30. Then I'm not in bed till midnight. Then I don't sleep. So that's just a yeah. mental thing works through. Like if you stay yeah. on the trip, or you're going to gain more distance. Period. Um, so, but but usually, typically, I would be. What my thing was when I got to the van, for the you know the final stop, uh, I had a chair, I had ice bags ready for my shins. I sat down. My dad cleaned my feet. I put my feet up. I put ice on my shins. Dinner was already ready. I ate. I took a Tylenol PM and I went to bed within a half an hour after stopping every night. So I didn't dilly dally around and sit around and chat or anything like that. I pretty much went right to bed. And that Tylenol PM put me to, it's just one, you know, simple thing, but it made a big difference. And then in the morning I would wake up at 4.30, uh, take care of duties. And then I'd be out by five. My goal yeah. was always out by five. I like the early start because you just, by noontime, you've got in, you know, 27 miles or something like that, whatever it was, yeah. um, sort of got half your day in by noon. Then the rest of the day sort of felt easier. So, you know, Jurek, Jurek went better at nighttime. He got up yeah. later. He just did it differently, but. I suppose everybody's different. You know, Scott, yeah. uh, not such a morning person. When I was out with uh, Carol Sabay, you know, he would start before 4 a.m. And he would, it was really interesting. Carol stuck to just one coffee in the morning. Um, yeah. I didn't eat much either. I initially yeah. it was making me a big breakfast, right? But it was better to get moving and then eat, maybe eat something a little more hearty a few hours into it. Yeah. Carol too? No, that was exactly what Carol did. So he'd wake up, he'd have some oatmeal um, and a coffee, yeah. move down the trail uh, three, four hours time. And then he'd have maybe a McDonald's or um, yeah. something like that. So something a bit heavier. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And how about um, coffee? Were you, uh, you're a coffee drinker. Did you drink much coffee on the trail? Uh, just, just like Carol, um, just in the morning. Oh, oh, oh yeah. yeah. Always had that, you know, speed go Carl's 100 mile blend. Uh, <laughs> coffee. Eric would make that. Eric would get up, you know, 10 minutes before me and make that for me. And then it was so I, that was the smell of that would wake me up because it's I love to smell a good fresh coffee, whatever kind it is. Yeah. Same kind of thing. But during the day, if I drank stuff with caffeine, it was Red Bull, which so we had a variety flavors too uh as you might expect on the trail so um yeah. that, mostly my caffeine intake was the rebel and you know rebels rebels the same as around as one cup of coffee so okay. i would 
that usually. And, uh, you know, there, I drank Coca-Cola too, some other sodas and, but I ate a lot. Carl and I probably ate kind of the same junk, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> you know Scott Jurek ate a lot of healthier food than Carl and I probably did. Uh, yeah. For me, I wanted fat. I wanted calories, you know, yeah. I mean, I was hungry. <laughs> so <laughs> I made sure I was, I was eating as much as I could. I wasn't doing any gel after yeah. the first two days. I didn't do any gel. I just started eating regular real foods. So it would sort of feel more full in my belly. And I think that yeah. worked out. The gels, gels are great. I mean, in a race, that's all I eat. Mm. But something like the AT, I think sometimes you need that hearty food that sort of fills you up a little too much sometimes. You know, like a McDonald's double cheeseburger is just like a bomb, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. Oh, you run after that, well, actually, you're hiking fast. So you're not really running the AT, you know? I don't care what anybody says. You're not running that much. Yeah. Um, jogging. You're jogging, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. There's definitely a difference. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, Carol would... Um, have a couple of burgers and or you know like um bre breakfast like a breakfast sausage and egg mcmuffin yeah. and stuff yeah. like this and it was all calories you know all good calories yeah. some pizza and, and then just constantly snacking on kind of beef jerky and uh m&ms and uh right that's what i did when i was moving is the, the simpler things but yeah when i started i'd get a big hunk of something um i was a big fan of uh mandarin oranges or or canned canned peaches or canned mandarin oranges oh yeah yeah because they're cool they kept them really cold for me and it was just really really you know soft fruit um with all the sugary syrup was really good that was probably one of my favorite things how much beers were you having like on the on the night times oh i i one or less i mean they know they would always crack open a good colon for me right when i finished but a lot of times i didn't even finish it it was just that initial kind of like oh that's good you know cold fizzy drink yeah uh, but the beer always tasted good after after a day. Did you have kind of um, a lot of rain uh, or extreme hot sun or any kind of extreme weather conditions, or did you get everything? Well, we had a little of everything, but it, ironically, it only rained four days on me the entire time, which is crazy. On day three, I was climbing up. Uh, I was in Maine, of course, and I was just coming up towards the shelter, and a little storm cloud was coming in. And it was probably five minutes from the shelter and this cloud had just started to spit rain a little bit. Right, right the very moment I got to the shelter, it just a deluge of rain came down. There was a river in the trail like within a minute. And I, so I d ducked under the shelter. I laid there for nine minutes until the storm passed. And then I moved on. <laughs> it's incredible that I was at the, at the shelter, right? I didn't get wet. Yeah. I didn't get wet, which was great. And then... And then the next time it rained was all the way in uh, almost in Dartmouth, New Hampshire, 10 days later or seven days later. It never rained until the first, till 10 days into my first, till that 2016 attempt. And we really had a one night, we came into Woodstock and it was thunder and lightning and bolting. I was by myself and it was dark and, I mean, it was pouring. I mean, it was pouring. I would just hope my light didn't blow out or I was screwed. <laughs> Um, but I got through it and I got to the van that day it poured and then maybe one or one other day. And then after that, it, it did never rained. It was nice. It was, there were some hot days for sure. Um, in the mornings, the humidity would come off the ground at like 7:30 AM when the sun yeah. came up, like Jersey, Pennsylvania, places like that. And the humidity and the heat was pretty oppressive. Uh, but you know, we survived the heat. The one thing, the beauty, the beauty of the AT is, as you know, is that you're always in the shade, you know, you're always in the yeah. woods primarily. So second you come out of the woods, it's like, Oh my God, it's like so hot, but in the woods, it's not, 
as bad as uh, some might think. No, I mean, definitely, for sure. It's the green tunnel, isn't it? It's a green tunnel. And it's a couple of degrees cooler in that green tunnel. Yep. Humid, yeah. but, but definitely um, yeah. cooler. You have a golf record as well. Um, is that right? A, a, a speed golf record? Yeah, I, well, it's it's been broken, of course, but uh, oh, oh but, man, okay. Yeah, I know. Well, I played two hundred and thirty holes of golf in in uh, twelve hours, which is an average of fifty six minutes per round of golf. And what's the new record? And when did it get broken? I think it's two. It's two. I think it's two forty two or something now. Like another twelve holes, maybe. Um, and it was broken a couple years ago, but you know that was just we was a charity event that we were doing, so. This was an opportunity for me to do something like that. So it was a week after, it was only a week after I ran a 50 miler in uh, Sonoma. So my legs were actually pretty fried. During the Pony Express, and I like the way Eric Bell said it, you just had a round of golf, didn't you? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, the yeah. funny thing is like, so I didn't know this was coming. Like, um, I think I, I don't recall looking at the map to say we're going to run by this golf course. And what I did is, um, like, hey, if we, you know, if we run by this golf course, maybe I'll stop and play. And it was kind of a joke. But when the time came, I, one of the greens was right next to the road that I was running. So I looked over to see if the greens were actually pretty good, pretty smooth. I'm kind of, I kind of like a nice course instead of a junky course. And they were pretty good. I'm like, all right, let's do it. And I was sort of in my tape. It was near. It was three or four days before the end of the pony. So. I, I was supposed to taper, right? So I did 26 miles that morning. Um, my crew was ahead. They like we had to get rental clubs and whatever. And then, ironically, the girl that was uh, working at the the pro shop there was the daughter of the owner or something. And the owner gets us the rental clubs, and they tell the story about me being on the Pony Express, running the Pony Express trail, and the the guy behind the um, pro shop. He's like, "Yeah, my daughter's been watching that guy go all along." And then here I am coming in to play golf. So we, we just played nine holes, you know. Um, I walked most of it actually, instead of gotten a cart. And my legs were so tuned to jogging five miles an hour, I just like, I felt good to move, you know. So uh, we we played that nine holes. I think I shot forty three, not bad for not swinging a club. And those clubs were terrible too, so because they were rentals. And uh, and then I just you know we finished that. I got something to eat and moved on, and just kept going. <laughs> it was fun. It was a good twist, you know. It was a good 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 way to break it up. It definitely um, brought a smile to my face and, you know, I, I was laughing at that one. Do you do um, any strength training or mass self-massage or do you receive massage or, or any cross-training? No, <laughs> I run pretty much. Uh, I don't really don't do a lot of, I don't, not a really huge believer in strength training. I'm not against it. Don't get me wrong here. But, you know, again, I'm that guy who just likes to do what he likes to do. And I've, I'm, I've been lucky. I'm not going to lie to you. I believe I've been gifted something for whatever reason. <laughs> well, also, um, you've got David Horton never did any strength training. Killian Jornet, I think, is known for not doing strength training. Yeah. I mean, I think to be the best runner, you got to run, you know, and that's just my philosophy. doesn't mean it's right or wrong again. Um, some other, you know, coaches will tell you differently and some may not. I think you just... Go with your go with your strength. Go with what you're the best at, and try to get the best, even improve on that. You know, and that's from that's running. You know, you can't tell someone to run well on a technical trail by you know working on their glutes and their hips and everything else because 
you're not on the trail, you know, to learn how to run well on junky terrain, you need to run on junky terrain. So mm-hmm. instead of doing this, that, or the other, I would just like, I'll get strong by, you know, doing the real stuff. And that's yeah. just how I do it. Um, it doesn't surprise me about killing it. I didn't know that, but, um, that he's amazing, you know, like he can run up any time. Um, but it doesn't surprise me that he, he kind of just runs in the mountains. You know, I bet you that's most of his workouts just runs in the mountains. Yeah, there's a book called Uphill Athlete, and I think he makes some contributions to that. And it says that his strength workouts are kind of striding up a mountain for so many seconds. So it's actually, you know, running is his strength workout, but against gravity. Yeah, yeah, right. And me too. I think another thing I used to do, I don't do this anymore, but I would always often run with, I'd pick up rocks on the side of the trail, ones that are just heavy enough to, after five minutes, you really want to put them down. Wow, yeah way of uh, incorporating just nature with your run you know like you don't need to go home and lift your dumbbells or anything you got dumbbells on the trail it's called a rock <laughs> um yeah. that up and run with that for five minutes until my arms are exhausted you know but those little things you know they help your upper body strength does it make me a better runner i don't think so but it sort of made me feel stronger you know um you don't you don't always have to go to the gym um i just, I just mm. don't like course you know i'd rather be outdoors just running you know, something I've not heard, um, anyone ask you your marathon PB or did you ever run a marathon? I ran one road marathon in my day, uh, 248.40 was my time. My goal was to break three hours at the time. This was 1991, I think. Yeah. And I'd start running in the mountains. I met a friend in Utah and we started running a bunch. And he's saying, hey, let's run St. George Marathon, which is um, it's a downhill marathon. Starts at 5,200, ends at, I think, 2,600. So it's very, very gradual um, descent, classic for Utah road marathons. Um, we didn't do much road training. We ran one 15-miler on the road. Otherwise, we ran on the mountains every day. So I didn't really have that kind of training. Never had a lot of speed. But uh, ironically, so I said 248.40. My dad's marathon PR is 248.38. Two seconds oh, fast. Wow. <laughs> and I wasn't sprinting in the end to get that. I wasn't even really thinking that when the time came. But it's ironic that you know, uh, those times are very, very similar and about, and almost about the same age. Um, I never had speed, man. I just have strength, I guess. Yeah, I know. I don't know your first marathon, just running two forty eight forty. That is pretty good. I think people work for years to get towards that. Um, you know, what's funny is that with that, it was, it was great. I was trying to break three hours. My buddy ran two fifty one. He was, you know, not, he, he fell apart the last three miles, but, um, I was psyched with 248. I was like, wow, this is awesome. I broke three. You know, I wasn't, but I, how many times do we see Mike Wardian run a marathon like every week in 235? You know, uh, there's so many guys out there. It's a whole nother level of like what speed is. Uh, I, I never had speed in high school when I used to race. I, I did all right. I did well, but I didn't win all the speedy things, you know. Uh, it's, I was psyched for 248. And, but I said I'll never do a road marathon again. And that's one thing I've stuck to because. I was so sore after the race. I, I mean, I've been sore after hundreds, but that road marathon was for an entire week. I could barely walk, you know, and I don't want to do that again. So, so you're saying you're becoming like less competitive and stuff. I think I've heard you mention that you'd actually potentially want to hike the 80 and do a through hike. Is uh-huh. that still something that's on your radar? Yeah, I think so. And my wife and I, you know, my wife and I kind of want to do it. Uh, we have two dogs and we, I'm not leaving my dogs right now. <laughs> so 
they're both eight and a half. So I'm, you know, it'll be after those those two unfortunately are gone. But uh, I kind of want to do it like normal. Last summer I hiked the Long Trail in Vermont with Eric Bell's. Cool. And that was 19 days, and you know we averaged like 13 a day, so nothing major, just kind of a standard AT through hike kind of pace. You know, yeah. middle of whatever, and that was really really cool because. We had to resupply in the towns. We had to hitch a ride down to the town. We had to eat food that we bought at the grocery store. You know, it is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a great time, and I learned a lot about how not to carry, how, a lot of stuff not to carry. <laughs> um, <laughs> people that do through hikes, they start their pack starts 40 pounds, and by the time to get the Niels Gap 30 miles up the road, up the trail, they're dumping half their gear. Um, we started out a base weight about 18, and then plus our food, which wasn't too bad. Um, but we dumped some stuff again. Uh, but I learned how to, you know, deal with the pack and, and learn how to backpack with not really any extra gear. Everything we had with us, we used for whatever reason, just about daily. So that was fair, you know? Um, yeah. Backpacking when I was younger and we went to the wind rivers or the Uinta range here. Um, you know, our packs weighed 40 pounds because you got the chair and you got the extra pot and you got this and that and the other, and it all weighs a ton, you know? Uh, but it was a great experience. And so that gave me some insight on like how to do the AT, just walking it, you know, normal um, and how, how to start your pack pretty light. That was a great experience. And do you reckon you would, uh, would you go southbound uh, or northbound on the AT? Yeah. Uh, well, I would say northbound, but the only problem with that is so many people start in March, you know, like, go northbound they start for their yearly through hike and it's i almost want to go southbound because you, you hit the bubble of people for sure but then it disappears you know i'd rather not start with 1500 people um, wow i didn't they, realize that well i mean <laughs> a lot, you know lot no thanks you know yeah it's a lot of people you know they start within a month and a half span or whatever but there's just a lot of people in the shelters and stuff you go southbound obviously you can't start till uh baxter park opens right so yep. that's end of May. So you've got June, July, August, September, and October. So you got six months. So I would finish probably late, but I think that would be cool because the South would be a little bit cooler in the fall. You'd probably get some cool leaves. You know, um, I think experience would be better southbound, but and I would certainly know it well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but part of the part of the experience though is actually not knowing it as well too. So, you know, I, I probably I got it's a tough question. I don't know. No, it's it, it it's uh, just a hypothetical question, really. I yeah, mean, yeah. You, you'll go which way you think is the right way to go, you know, at the time. What is the future kind of? I know you mentioned about through hiking and 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 mm-hmm. you've got your book coming out. So I suppose you've already partly answered that. Are you doing any virtual races or is any anything? Oh, the virtual race on the, on the horizon. <laughs> no, be no virtual race. Um, no man. Uh, now, see, so our speed go 50K race is uh, seven, I'm going to say, I think seven weeks from now, six or seven yeah. weeks. And uh, so that's like in the immediate future. That's That race is on. Uh, we plan cool. to have it. And we should, unless, you know, I get shut down. At, at this point, I believe I can have it. So yeah, that's the immediate future. But really in my running career, you know, I, I want to keep running. But I obviously, like I said before, I'm getting slower and stuff like that. So I don't expect to compete at the front. I just want to be able to be happy running. I don't care if I place high anymore as much as I used to. Um, I don't really have major goals in terms of like setting a record for this, that, or the other. I mean, I know my hundred mile record is the 42 wins is, is 
out of reach, at least for quite a while. Yeah. I'm, will I add on to that? I don't know. I'd like to try, but if it doesn't, it's not going to kill me either. You know, it's like, okay, there's got to be an end to it sometime. Um, to win one this year would be 19 years in a row. Wow. Obviously, any races happening this year. Um, the Superior 100 is on my radar, and I'm entered in that. It's September 6th. And that's a tech, real technical race up by Lake Superior, which is good for me. So in theory, that will be good. But I mean, for me to win it, I don't know. I mean, one of those young kids is going to beat me. <laughs> There's probably five or six of them and they're all, one of them is going to nail it, you know? So I don't expect to win there, but I hope to run well. Um, I'm just trying to do as much as I can for that at this point. But after that, again, like, you know, I'd love to keep running for Hoka for a long time. Um, our partnership is great. They've been wonderful for me. They've got the speed yeah. go to, I mean, you know, who has that, right? Like no yeah. one is that so that's like really cool and in order for that to continue i mean it'd be good for me to be collaborating with hoka on a regular basis at any point um but you know i'm gonna play a lot of golf i'm gonna keep coaching online and if if it all comes to shit and all goes away for whatever reason um something will fall in my lap as it always does it just yeah. seems i'm lucky <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of things have happened in my life man that i just I can't imagine I'd be where I am right now because no, I'm not rich, but I'm happy rich, you know? So I think yeah. that's really matters. And, and if, like I said, if it all goes to shit, something will fall in my lap and, and I'll move on forward. But, you know, hopefully I'm going to try to shoot under parts today. I'm playing the ladies tees, my wife. <laughs> um, so I got one last question and I've yep. asked this to uh, like David Horton as well. And also Jeff Browning. And yep. um, nice. yeah, it's a simple question. It's just like, what to you is the difference between success and failure? Uh, well, happiness is a pretty cliche answer, but um, I think that works. Well, it's yeah, I mean, happiness, right? I mean, if you think about it, success doesn't mean you beat everybody. You know, I mean, I've had a wonderful career and I'm not going to win everything, you know, and I never did, right? But happiness at the end is what matters and hanging out with your friends and just every day waking up saying, what am I going to do today? To me, that's happiness. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, yeah. when I wake up in the morning, I don't really know how far I'm going to run. That's happiness. I'm going to, oh, I'm going to go. I don't even know where I'm going to go. I have a million places to go in Salt Lake that are 15 minute drive. And I just make that decision later. So I think making decisions on the fly is always kind of cool because your life isn't so structured, you know, yeah. um, having a non-structured life. And I don't have kids. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's a huge factor. Um, I don't know how Browning does it. He's got, he's got three kids running around and, uh, and he's full of energy, but, uh, but yeah, just happiness is really all you can ask for and just to live healthy, I guess, as long as I can. But when I'm, you know, when I'm about to fall over, it's okay if I fall over. No, I, I really appreciate that answer that um, sometimes it takes someone to say it out loud for you to remember. Yeah. That, that is probably one of the most important yeah. Um, that one of the most important differences between success and failure. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, let's end on that. That's sweet. I really like right that. On. So, uh, I'm going to, uh, Hey, uh, I'm sure we're going to catch up face to face one day. Yeah, um, I hope so for sure. And, and when, yeah. so let me ask you this. Yeah. Are you planning on trying to go next year because of what happened this year with COVID? Is that your plan? 
Yeah, and also I just wasn't prepared financially. I funded last yeah. year myself, and to be honest, I I just almost finished paying off the debts for that. And yeah. um, it's not cheap, you know. It's not, and 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 no. things get more expensive. So to be honest, I didn't have the, and I'm not going to pay for it myself. I'm going to try and raise the funds somehow through right, right. whatever I've got to do. You know, it'll work, like you said, it'll happen. You just got to head in the right direction. So yeah, yeah. so I I think. A combination of COVID and also just not being prepared financially. So yeah. both those things. I think you know, looking looking back and give you an idea, like Red Bulls. I mean, Red Bull. It's a little different when Red Bulls paying the bill, right? You don't buy the cheap steak; you buy the fillet. <laughs> because <laughs> you know, well, it's true. I'm not going to lie to you, right? We, we didn't. There were no, like no holds barred. Like we bought. They spent a lot of money on things that we probably didn't need to spend money on. So you can go a lot cheaper than what I did. Yeah. But you know, but Red Bull did pay everybody too. You know, like mm. they out in labor costs, they paid sixty-five, seventy thousand dollars. Wow! Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. It's a wow, exactly. And I had a bonus, so mm. I paid my bonus, which was twenty-five k. You know, um, that was in the back of my head too when I was going. So, <laughs> you know, well, no lying, right? So, but <laughs> all that, all that aside, if you have the right person to crew you. Um, that can get away and, and afford to get away for that long, then, you know, I mean, they may not need 20,000 bucks for six weeks or whatever it takes, you know, just find two people, three people's enough, but just don't make it a production, you know, like keep it as simple as you can. You had the right vehicle. That last vehicle you showed me that picture, I think that's probably perfect, you know? Um, so that's all you need. I mean, you don't need any, it's good to have another vehicle there just in case something happens to that. So I had two, I used my van and then I had my truck. Those are both my cars. So they, I get paid 58 cents a mile on both of those too. But, uh, part of the plan. Right. But, um, yeah, it's, you just gotta have the right people, man. It's, it's the whole key to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited, you know, I'm really looking forward to getting back out there. There's something about just like you said earlier on in this conversation, the runner just has to move forward, eat and yeah. sleep and repeat. And there's something I know also it's not um, all um, easy times. And in fact, a lot of it is miserable, but there's something yeah. about just surviving that is uh, appealing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, after a couple of weeks, you kind of get going and you're like, it just becomes automatic. It's 5 a.m. and then it's 10, gets a little warm. Then your afternoon, mm. four, it cools off. It's like every day goes by faster and faster and faster. And all yeah. of a sudden, like in the film, when Eric says, all of a sudden we're here 40 days into it, it does yeah. go really fast. It's miserable in between, but um, it's it's weird how it goes by really fast. Uh, and the crew, like Eric, Eric and my yeah. dad were ready to be done when it was over, you know? I mean, yeah. at that, but again, Eric's that smiley guy. He, he, he and my dad got along really, really well. So yeah. that was great. My dad can, like, he can step aside and not talk for two hours, and he's perfectly fine with that. So they yeah. don't have chatty you know all the time so that was good for them and that's why it was kind of a success i mean my dad i mean i can't get mad at my dad i mean i at the same time i still i barked once in a while you know i wasn't yeah. happy all the time but that's they expected that they sort of knew it and it brushes right over their head you got to have someone that just doesn't take that personally it's all just yeah you're gonna happen that's gonna happen once in a while yeah i got, I got my mom she's still gonna come out um yep and uh hopefully someone else to you know like you said at least i think two people's good better than one and mm -hmm. um 
just got to find that extra person and it'll happen you know i've I, i'm i'm the same as you i think you know um if you're driven and you enjoy something and don't worry about it too much you know yeah. it's it's gonna happen obviously you got to put the effort in but um yeah i'm not gonna stress out about it <laughs> you know no yeah that's yeah. the worst thing you can do man is stress yeah. out no Oh, geez. Hey, I, I really enjoyed talking to you, uh, you know, and uh, and I genuinely look forward to the day that we can have a beer, you know, and yeah. uh, and um, just sure. uh, go for, do what do whatever. All right, um, Carl, enjoy the golf uh, and yeah. I'll reach out to you like uh, in an email now and again or whatever. Just yeah. say hi. Yeah, anytime, man. Just ask anything, whatever you need. Yeah, yeah. All right. Good one. Have a have a great day. I'll catch you later. All right, man. All right, cheers. Thanks. I really appreciate you guys listening to the show. And if you want to subscribe, that would be really good because subscribing means that you get the episode delivered to you directly without you having to search for it. Also, it'd be really cool if you could go and give me a five-star review if you enjoyed the show. So that would help the uh, show become more known to other people. What else? Uh, if you guys want to know about my run coaching services, go to my website. It is uh, www.christianultra.com and Christian spelled with a K. So that's K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. And you can find out also stuff about my up and coming Appalachian Trail record attempt in 2021. And I think that's about it. Also, you could go and visit Patreon if you want to support the show. So that would be much uh, appreciated. Just go and check me out on Patreon. Look for Christian Morgan. And I think that's about it. So next week's guest should be Harvey Lewis. And he's won Bad Water previously. So it'll be a really interesting conversation. Anyway, have a great day. And I'll see you guys, or you'll hear from me next week on Monday. The shows are usually released. So in the meantime, go and check out my previous episodes. Um, previous guests include Michael McKnight, Sarah Cameron, the six-hour French record holder. Also, I got like David Horton, living legend. Uh, original ultra runner setting the FKT on the Appalachian Trail and also Jeff Browning man so there's a whole bunch of cool uh, episodes to go and listen to and in the meantime stay happy